I watched the uh, video from yesterday and uh, want to just open up discussion about it. I think I'd like to do it with laptops closed. In fact, I would like to do it with laptops <laughs> closed, except for Nathan. Nathan gets to keep his laptop open. Nathan's the head of IT around here. No, really, Nathan. Well, your choice. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let me start by saying I give myself a B minus on yesterday. Uh, and I want to explain that to you. I give myself a B minus because I can count four ticks down. What happened to me, I think, just so that you have a sense of what I think I learned from the experience, is that I actually got angry during the Google video. I actually felt it emotionally and didn't quite know what I was feeling. Don't think I got it straight until this morning. Maybe it's not even straight yet. But I felt impatience. And felt it as I think I now understand it to be, because the problem is one of empathy. The fact is, there's no empathy at the heart of a legal for profit corporation. That's just a fact. That's what the realists were teaching at Yale in the 30s. The corporation is a legal invention. It employs humans, but it is not itself human. And it answers to for-profit. That's its legal nature. So that when the company is making an empathic argument to the librarians of my community. I'm not feeling empathy. I was feeling violated, I think. I think I was feeling manipulated. I think I was feeling that I was being sold. And it wasn't me that was being sold. It's the staff in the library. I mean, the weakest place in the university. The poor librarians. Just think of the position they're in. And then I started making mistakes. First with you. My apology. I bleated at you because somehow your question wasn't the question I was wanting it to be. I, I, sorry. And then Sid picked up on your question and responded very substantively. 
But somehow, for me, I was looking for something that was going to go to the principle that I felt was being violated. I guess that's the way I think about it in retrospect. So, okay, one down. Next one came... with you, Josh, when we brought that question to a close that we'd been discussing with a vote, and it went unanimous but one. And as a moderator, my issue was, do I call on you? And I did. Right choice. But then you began by telling us that you believed in openness and you were only making the argument for the other side. So immediately you were saying, this is an argument for argument's sake. And I should have stopped you right then. And didn't. Strike two. Strike three came with you, Becca, when you asked Stuart a question. Having, having, having seen my earlier mistakes and doing what you do so wonderfully with me, rescue me when I'm somehow at the edge of aggression, you asked your question to Stuart, and when you got finished, I called on Anne. I never gave Stuart a chance to answer. So, strike three. And strike four was what I felt after. Somehow got left on the floor, not expressed as cleanly as I could have imagined it to be. And... Uh, I can say more about that, but I'm much more interested, at this point at least, in hearing from all of you. I think once again we've had one of these events in here where we all experience it. We all, we, we've in some way come to trust that we share a space that we can talk about in rhetorical terms. And I'd just love to have your reactions to it. So Tim has supplied us now with two, three handheld mics. Richard, Mary, Mary, start us off. Um, I just have one quick question, which is arguably inappropriate, which is that I had to leave about four minutes before class ended when Stuart, I think, was saying that he had heard some, what sounded to him, very elitist things from the class. And I left before I heard whether any response was made to that, so I wanted to know if anybody remembered anything that he said, because I have a response to his comment if nobody else made one. 
Does anybody recall? Well, basically, I think I, I well, don't know. What did you hear, Mary? Well, he R was. Remind us. I heard him saying, um, "Well, do you believe in financial aid? Because in that case, your full tuition, those who pay full tuition, are subsidizing those who pay, who get financial aid, and you can't possibly think that's a bad system. So, how can you think this is a good system unless you're so elitist that you think that only?" wealthy people should have access to excellent resources. So that was one thing. Another thing was, I think he responded inaccurately to Josh's point and said, um, do you think that um, you should have special training before you have access to libraries because otherwise you might be so stupid that you get it wrong um, and things like that. And I, I really liked him and I thought he was making some excellent points, but I think he misunderstood to a certain extent where we were coming from. And I think that was partly because I don't know whether or not you prepped the panelists ahead of time on like us being in an empathic argument phase, but it wasn't, he wasn't, didn't seem to be making much of an effort to, and again, I really, really liked him. He didn't seem to be making an effort to see things from our perspective and that there is a concern that our degrees would become worthless. Now, my answer to that is it's pretty clear they wouldn't because we still have access to all of these incredible physical resources and to faculty members and to winter travel funding and all those things, and at the end of the day, to the degree, which is what's going to help us tremendously in all of our careers, um, regardless of what we know. I mean, there are probably people who know a lot more than any of us will ever know about any given subject of law, but we may have an advantage because we have a Harvard Law degree. So I just sort of thought that that was an issue that didn't really get addressed and maybe an empathic take would have led to better communication. So I agree with you that he, Sid, actually, it was Sid Verba, I think, rather than Stuart, who was oh. making these comments. Um, we, he didn't really make, as Art said, much of an effort to be empathic, and he did kind of come back with just this, well, if you guys are elitists, then who cares about you? Um, and he, he missed this distinction with the financial aid that we then got to at the very end of class and didn't get to go into that was really interesting, which is that in the financial aid situation, arguably you're paying for something that really is very valuable to you directly in your experience. The range of people who are here in your classes with you makes a big difference. And if that's restricted to a bunch of people who all have the personal financial resources to pay for it, then arguably you lose out and your professors lose out, the actual community here loses out. Um, whereas in this situation in which I'm spending all of this time uh, in Second Life uh, basically offering our class to this at-large community, there's a much more difficult question of whether that's contributing to your experience in any way. And I think we had hoped at the beginning of the semester that there would be a lot more interaction directly between you and the students who are participating online. But to me, I heard that and I thought, whoa, there's a challenge to me that I haven't responded to here. I mean, assuming that you guys were paying in your tuition for my time and that I'm spending this time on these students who aren't paying at all, how could we possibly be justifying that? So just to make the question that much harder for the perspective of the people who support openness, I'd be interested in what people think about that. Well, I, I think it's a good point, but it also it kind of depends on how you define your community, right? I mean, fi you know, by 
with financial aid, we're paying for something valuable to our community, which is, you know, interesting, diverse, and intelligent people around us in our community, which I think that was your point, right? But, I mean, with open courseware, open access, where if you want to argue that we're subsidizing something, okay, but we're subsidizing, what, a more educated planet, uh, a more educated nation? I mean, what... How narrowly do we have to define the community within which we can derive benefit? I mean, I like to think that, that we'll derive benefit from a more enlightened society. And so if that's what we're subsidizing, you can make an argument that we're still subsidizing something that's valuable to us personally. Um, I, following on that, I, I definitely I, I see your point there, but I think that the effect on society at whole as a whole, is, you know, probably just a drop in the bucket from any individual course, whereas with financial aid, you can argue that it actually makes our degrees worth more in that people, you know, see Harvard or whatever on your diploma, and you think, oh, that's a school that admits great people regardless of personal resources, not like, okay, you know, it's a finishing school for rich kids. And I, I don't think you can make that argument specifically with the uh, open courseware material. I think you can, because I think if you can say uh, this university is offering a valuable resource to the students who actually choose to attend there, despite having put all of their raw materials online, then you know the professor isn't teaching from the lecture slides. You know that there's some interaction going on in the classes that can't fully be captured by this open course where, you know, raw materials, that's, that makes class still worth going to. I think that maybe, like, ups the ante for professors because it suddenly there, there has to be, like, some kind of incentive for you to attend class, right? Otherwise, you would just sit there and read the notes and do the homework like everyone else in the world could be. So I think it really does make the quality better if <laughs> even out of just, like, force. So I know I should keep my mouth shut and just keep getting comments from students, but um, personally, I'm really trying to make it so that this course is as close to as good for the at-large participants as the course that you guys are experiencing here in this classroom. And so I was upset a little bit by the argument that, oh, well, what we're giving away is just less. It's just not as good, and so therefore uh, it's okay to give it away. I don't want that to be true, and I'm looking for what's the way that I can do that that's still fair to everybody who is paying for their education. Actually, that was that was sort of my response, too, was that everyone on the panel seemed okay with the situation where in class you're getting something very different from what you would be getting in the rhetorical space where we are. But I think that in a situation like Rebecca teaching class in Second Life, you have something that very closely simulates what we do in class. They do the same assignments. They get much of the same... Uh, substance out of the class and they can also watch it on tape so they're really getting a more rich experience and the question is at the point where we move it from just being putting up lecture slides and assignments to the point where pretty much you can take the classes for free and sit in on class if you want to and get the same experience that other students would get without uh, having to pay for it or pay tuition is that something that would be more troubling than just putting up the lecture slides? But is sitting in the same as participating? Like, I mean, because they, they can sit in, but they can't, like, ask questions and be involved directly in the discussions. If they have something pressing to say, they can't say it. So well, I, mean, uh, I would say that it depends on what you 
view openness as. Openness, in the end, would essentially be, could, in theory, be opening up the class. And let's say we had the class, instead of having it in this space, on Second Life, where the other uh, people in the extension school students and everyone else, who the public at large who wants to meet us in Second Life, could join us in discussions there. Their experience would be just the same as ours because they could participate in discussions, do those sorts of things. And a lot of students would probably find that very helpful because they would gain new insights from different perspectives in the community. But on the other hand, there would also be people who would feel upset that they're paying for this experience, whereas others can gain it for free. I mean, you're right. In in the context we know it as now, especially with just what MIT courseware offers, it's not the same rich experience that we would get sitting in a class. And I agree with that. I think the more interesting point and the harder one that the panelists didn't address is what happens when those two are essentially merged and they are pretty much the same as in teaching a course in Second Life or something like that. I was just going to say on the really specific issue of how can you justify spending a lot of your time with the people in Second Life when we're, you know, paying for your time and effort, I don't really see or I, I don't see why your time and effort in cultivating a community outside the Harvard Law community that we can interact with and learn from is uh, valueless to us. That's something that's part of the package that we're paying for is that when we take when we take this particular class the line between them and us is blurred and you know they want to meet us and they're getting this for free and we're paying to buy into this particular environment where we have this community outside of the insular us the Harvard Law School us that's not representative of you know the world outside these walls and if we don't take advantage of it because for whatever reason then that's you know money we spent that we didn't capitalize on but it's a resource that you that you gave and provided and cultivated for us that you know is perfectly justified i think well but so let's get serious about that i think i've aside from the assigned uh time when you guys had to come into second life seen one of the law students that i know of in this class at some other time in second life so it's clear that this isn't a resource that's being heavily utilized by this law school class right now and it's all very nice if we say, oh, this is something you guys should want to do. But perhaps it doesn't make sense for us to have you subsidize something that in reality you don't want to take advantage of. And to actually be fair about it, this, none of this is being paid for by the law school. So you guys are, in fact, not subsidizing my time here at all. But the extension school students, to a certain extent, are subsidizing my time because I'm paid by the Harvard Extension School. And the way that the at-large participants participate is that they come to my office hours in Second Life, which is something that I set up uh, to offer to the extension school students. And I also opened it up to the at-large participants because it turns out that the extension school students don't make a whole lot of use of the office hours, and I just have to sit there anyway. And so it's, the question is, you know, it really is put to you in terms of that for the extension school students. I'm offering a resource for them, a direct opportunity for them to interact with me that they're, they don't find to be useful 
they actually don't come to those office hours. So It was a separate point. So you're asking a specific question. Uh, um, so I, I'm a BSA, so I teach first year legal, I TA for first year legal writing research. And there's a similar issue. I mean, everyone, uh, you set up office hours and people don't necessarily come. But I think that's just the way people take it, choose to take advantage of resources or not, going back to Josh's point. I don't think necessarily that's a bad thing. I think that people will either use it to their benefit or they'll find benefits in doing other things as opposed to using those resources. And I, that's just naturally going to work that way. Some people will decide this is something I should really use and some people will decide it's something I really shouldn't. Perhaps you should consider not offering office hours if they don't get used and offering something that they do actually want to use, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a consideration. I don't I wouldn't deny that. Kenny? Well, I was going to make kind of a related point, I guess, or two points. One is that um, the fact that, you know, you can lead a horse to water and can't make him drink, like, I, that's, I agree with John, that's just the way the world works sometimes. So I wouldn't be too upset about that if I were you. And I think that if you didn't offer office hours, people would be upset about that, even if they're not going to come. They want you to be offering that resource even if they don't want it. But um, the second point is I see this whole open courseware and, you know, you spending your time and us subsidizing it or whatever is kind of like a wiki thing. Like, for whatever reason, people enjoy sharing their knowledge and going to the work to share what they know in, on Wikipedia, for example. And I'm not sure why this experience, this space in Harvard Law School can't be sort of us writing a wiki that other people can use, sort of. And I'm not sure why the authors of Wikipedia don't feel like they're unfairly subsidizing the world's knowledge, and we would think that we are unfairly subsidizing the world's knowledge. I don't see why that's different. So, first, to just sort of address the office hours point, I think that, you know, you, you, that there's a difference there when you say that nobody comes, so I open them up to the at-large participants. Um, you know, probably, you know, what we all know about office hours being true, well, I think what you said that people rarely come to them, and also what John said, that if you didn't head them, people would still be upset. Um, sort of putting those two together, though, I wonder what would happen if, you know, what, what if for some reason on some particular evening there were a whole bunch of people that decided to show up, and there would be an issue of who do you talk to in limited amount of time in office hours? Would you, would you talk to the extension school students first? Would you talk to the at-large students? Would you talk to every other? Would you talk to 75%, 25%? I mean, and, and, and I think that sort of economically would be an interesting thing to sort of talk about. But until that problem arises, you know, there, there's not necessarily any harm being done there. Well, and, I actually saw that problem arise. Oh, okay. I, I've been a kind of an observer uh, just watching Becca do this thing in Second Life that she's been totally absorbed in doing. So when I hear her seeming to complain that nobody shows up at office hours so she has to take people from... I, that, that's not the way it feels when you're in the room with her. It, it, feels like, it feels like, hey, look, look, you know. And I attended um, an event which was uh, somehow brought to focus. I don't know what the background of it was, but there were some people from the MacArthur Foundation present in this outdoor space that 
Becca was uh, hosting. And they were there to attend the panel discussion. Uh, and a whole bunch of people showed up. And it just really didn't work. It's like the space was overwhelmed. And yet there was an excitement in watching a space like this get overwhelmed and seeing, no, this doesn't work. And it was immediately followed by a discussion about what had just happened that totally worked. It's like suddenly, it's, it's in a sense, it's like what we're doing here in that we experience some focused stimulus and we do it all together in a space in which we've come to be willing to talk to each other out in the open. And then we experience it and then we talk about it. And it's got a, a recursive quality to it that makes it powerful. I feel like that's more or less what's happening. And so, to me, this question comes down to what may seem a fine point, but which turns out not to be. There is a difference between virtual and real. You are here with me. You are also here with me, but in a different way. Ultimately, I think the big question for the children that come after us will be holding fast to the ability to distinguish real from virtual. I think it's a challenge. I pretty much disagree with that, I think, just as a person of the generation, the next generation. Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's become hard for me to distinguish, not, a, not in terms of do I know whether I'm sitting in front of my computer and interacting in Second Life or not, but in terms of the, just the I, assumptions about what we consider to be real in our real lives as we walk around, these things that we take to be basic to our existence, like, you know, that people are allowed to have cars and drive them around. That's like a reality for us right now, but you can easily imagine that 10 years down the road, that's not going to be how reality operates anymore. And the thing that ends up staying the same over time is that people relate to other people and have these meaningful relationships. And that seems to be the thing that's consistent across the real virtual boundary. The way that you relate is different. Running a panel in Second Life is different from running a panel in a real room, and we're still trying to figure out how to do it, what the social norms should be in this different space. But the basic relationships are the same thing. So I don't know if this is true or not, but somebody told me that Second Life is based on a book called Snow Crash, which is a science fiction book by Neil Stevenson in which um, Second Life has basically taken over most people's first lives, um, and they live primarily in this virtual world. And uh, I, I just think that if that happens and if the boundary between actually being in this classroom and not gets 
you know, finer and finer, then that's sort of a way of making excellent education free for everyone. And then people at the end can take the bar. And if they can pass the bar, then good for them and they can be lawyers. And I just sort of can't imagine anything better. I mean, if none of us had to ever come to Harvard Law School because, I mean, if there's a way of making that possible, that seems ideal. But one thing I am worried about is I noticed the MIT program, it's still voluntary and 20% of the teachers don't post their content online. And I know some professors here at the law school who wouldn't post their materials online and who would stop teaching first. And, and so I think it always has to be people have to preserve the option of keeping it private. But I mean, apparently most people are willing to. I heard that and my heart thrilled to it because that 20% that chooses not to put their stuff online is the proof that the 80% are doing it because they really want to. It's like a testament to the liberty of the situation. Um, I, I um, uh, meant to say that one of the things that I was troubled about on my list was things left on the floor. And one of the things left on the floor was Anne Margulies after the class ended saying that somehow she wished she had said that the open courseware project had genuinely improved the education at MIT and has done it both by students having this resource to reference but also by reason of the faculty becoming much more self-aware that they were in a teaching environment. And people who would generally back to the class, chalk the board, were suddenly turning around and being more present in the space. And so this idea of, well, that's, I, I wish that had come out clearly in the class. I'm delighted to have said it now. Actually, something she said just made me think that um, people who did open courseware, I could see how it worked at MIT, but if you did it at the law school and you took like corporations open courseware, you still couldn't take the bar because you would have to go to an accredited law school to do that, I think. So like, what good would it do to learn about law stuff to like a normal person? Uh, yes. So one thing that's been very interesting to me in the at-large participants is that at first we thought, oh, we'll just make it so they could do everything a student could do in this class. And it turns out that they don't even want to, that these are people who have real full lives doing, you know, they have a full-time job, a family, everything else. They're there because they're interested and they don't want to do homework. And they're not looking to get, you know, to sort of skip law school. If they wanted to go to law school, they'd find some way to go to law school. So it turns out in a way that it's not very competitive with the actual experience that's being offered to students. We're trying to offer them something where they can get to what are the interesting ideas in this class in a way that doesn't take them forever to learn and doesn't require them to do a whole bunch of homework to, involve, to be involved with it. And the course materials in a certain sense are like, it is overwhelming, it's too much. 
What they actually want is a little bit of material and a real opportunity to have a discussion about that material. Um, in another way, your question is profound about why would anybody want to learn about law other than people who want to be lawyers. And I mean, just because they couldn't actually Sorry, take the mic, I can't. I mean, just because they couldn't actually practice or, you know, use it because it's actually against the rules or whatever. Except in California. Except in California. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I see. Well, that is uh, curiosity. Well, I guess one thing, like, I think open education is a great thing. I think, you know, like, I'm actually involved in some programs to educate people in India who don't have access to education and things like that um, and paying for it for them and other such things. But my concern is more along the lines of um, not giving the raw materials, but like, like you said, if we have courses in Second Life and things like that, that are on the level of law school classes, which is what we're trying to achieve, then couldn't people just go and take all these courses and then who's going to be left paying for the bill that makes it possible to have those courses in the first place is my real question. But that's what I was trying to say before. You're here with me. At some level, that's worth something. And it's possible that you can imagine that somehow the virtual experience will become so good that it's almost as good as being here with me. But it's never going to be. The experience of being present with your teacher is of extraordinary value. Well, so granted, you're... I'm not you, and I can't be you for any of these students who are out there. But I think Art brought up what really ends up being fundamental to this, which is that you're here with each other, too. And the, the quality of a discussion like this, where we're passing the mic around and listening to everybody, depends a lot on the fact that everybody who's here can really do that at an extremely high level. And if, when you've just got everything open, I mean, you have a lot of really intelligent people and people who have studied a lot, but you also just have anybody who wants to come in and talk about anything. So we get, you know, plenty of griefing or random comments or who knows what else that just isn't going to exist in this Harvard Law environment where you guys have all done 22 years of work to guarantee that you deserve to be in this conversation. I think those points are both excellent, and I think that um, it is a concern that law schools altogether would disappear, and therefore there would be no course web-based content. But I think, I mean, maybe it's a false analogy, but take like the, you know, Kaplan LSAT training service or something like that. These these educational services that are not mandatory but seem to be helpful, and a lot of people take them, and maybe there would be people who would be willing to come and sit physically in Harvard Law School because they have the money and they want that extra little edge, whatever it is, the comfortable chairs, whatever. Um, so that's one possibility, although you may be right, it might not be a feasible model. As with, um, with regard to the ABA accredited law schools, I sort of um, 
again, it's possible that if you took away that rule and just let anyone take the bar as they can in California, like Abraham Lincoln did, like lots of good lawyers have done in the past, it's possible that law schools would suffer for that. But um, it's also possible that they wouldn't and that some people who would get to be lawyers who, um, as the case stands, can't afford to do it, and that would be a valuable thing. Um, well, one slightly different issue that I wanted to bring up was I've been kind of frustrated. Like, we had the intro to Second Life, and then we haven't really done anything yet. We've tried a variety of different experiences, and I kind of feel like we're still discussing it like it's us versus them or us. You know, we're in one category, they're in another category. And I kind of wonder if in a future class, like, if we could encourage or facilitate more interaction because I do think that maybe like they have different things to offer and that we could benefit and I think perhaps they could too I mean not to be elitist but I think that there could be mutual um, benefit mutually beneficial relationships and we haven't developed that area at all so Beck that's a reasonable question <laughs> and I've asked you the same question and now we've got you on the spot here and I'm going to want you to answer I have thought having listened to the podcasts uh that there would be a great experience in Second Life to gather a group to, if they're willing, to listen to a podcast and then talk about it with the person who had made it. And um, my question to you is, do you think that would be a good idea? And could we somehow figure out whether anybody here would think it was a good idea? And if we thought it was a good idea, would it be possible to do it? Well, first of all, it's a great idea. We've been doing it with the extension students who all made podcasts and who have been in Second Life a lot over the course of the semester. So they have been there, and we've been playing their podcasts and discussing them. And it's a totally fun and interesting experience. All these podcasts, they're perfect for this. They give a clear, thoughtful idea in a short period of time. We can all sit there and listen to it together and then have a really interesting discussion about it. Um, and... We would love, and all of the at-large participants would love, to have you guys come and lead some of those discussions or lead those discussions with my help um, in there about your own podcast. So I briefly mentioned this in class, and Allison, I think, is the only person who actually wrote to me to say, I would like to do this. Um, it happened to be in a week when we had this MacArthur panel and this other ethnomusicology panel scheduled. But... I would really love to set that up. There are lots of people who would be interested. The thing that I've found is that there isn't a lot of uptake for not-for-credit, out-of-class activity um, among the law student population. It just, you know, I didn't do that a lot when I was a law student. I'm not trying to say that there's something wrong with it. You're all very busy, and this isn't high on people's list. Second Life is, you know... Also a little bit intimidating. We hoped that the introduction would be enough to get you guys started and that you would feel welcome to come, and you certainly are welcome to come to Berkman Island and participate in absolutely anything and everything that we're doing there. It would only be a plus for us. And while we're in an invitation mode, I want to continue the invitations. Um, tonight uh, at 7 o'clock, uh, the Fred Friendly Seminars, of which I've mentioned you, to you in the past, is doing a taping 
of one of their Fred-friendly seminars at the Museum of Science. Uh, it's open to the public. And uh, I'm gathering with anyone that's possibly interested in going at 5 o'clock at the Berkman Center, the idea of getting uh, something to eat at the Hark and then going down to the event. Uh, and I would be delighted to have any of you come. There's also a breakfast tomorrow morning at the faculty club, uh, which if there's some serious uptake and you'd like to really dig into it, is with Ruth Friendly, who's Fred Friendly's uh, still wonderful uh, kind of chairman of the board of the Fred Friendly Seminars, and Rich Kilberg, who is the executive director. So uh, anybody wants to come along on that adventure, that would be just fine, too. All right, now, I'm, I'm a little worried in class management terms because I have a plan that I want to execute, which involves actually playing a podcast and talking about it. That is basically replicating this experience. But I really don't want to cut this discussion off, which has been wonderful. So if somebody's got something they really think is a good one, let it happen. Okay. I think we, we sort of dropped the question of why someone who's not going to practice as a lawyer might want to learn about the law. And I think, you know, in general, people are subject to the law and they're somewhat interested in it. And I don't think that I had a good understanding of how the law actually worked before I got here. And I do think that it's something that would be valuable to anyone to take a course in contracts to learn about the Constitution, which the people you know, care about. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a mystery why people might want to see materials from law courses if they're not going to practice. Okay. Uh, well, one thing I wanted to talk about, we've brought up the elitism point a few times, and I think it's something that's been uh, distorted a little bit because, you know, one of the responses to it is like, well, okay, you know, you're, you know, an elitist for not wanting the courseware out there, but, you know, the real benefit of your education is you get to be around other MIT or Harvard law students or what have you. And that, to me, is at least, if not more elitist than any of the closed courseware sentiments. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, it gets to a, a real issue that, you know, we've talked about, you know, it's not always, you know, openness, good, like democratic, et cetera, like closeness, bad. We've talked about, you know, there are benefits to closed spaces. You know, there's an openness includes an openness to closed spaces. And I think throwing in the, the elitist uh, guilt trip um, kind of distorts the terms of the argument of, you know, how we actually want to run education. Um, okay, okay, that actually is kind of is a good lead-in because I thought that that's something that Art brought up that we haven't addressed in a particular way was the idea that our we have addressed it, but the idea that our degrees are going to be devalued and this sort of powerful thing that we that we you know earned through our you know amazing brilliance and and very very hard work um, is 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 going to be gone. And I think that we've only addressed that in the sense of saying no, it won't. We've we've explained reasons why that's not really true, why it stays different. I don't think we have to even say that to sort of counter that argument. I don't think the, the only answer to what about the power of our degrees is don't worry, they'll be fine. I think we can say 
they might lose their power, and that's still okay, because I think that we are, and I mean, one thing that's been, that's been coming in, into this class over and over again is the paradigm shift that's going on right now in the way that people learn and the way that information is distributed. The, education is becoming less and less about giving knowledge to someone because knowledge is becoming more and more omnipresent, and, and it's going to be more and more about how to sort through the information that's available to you and how to make decisions about it, not how to get it or will you have access to it. So I think it's... Maybe it's not inevitable, but I think it's inevitable that we're going to end up in a world where we're all going to have access to virtually an unlimited amount of information, and it's not going to be about, it's not going to be about that anymore. And, and, in a, and in a similar way, maybe we'll lose the ability to point at our degree as sort of indicia of our ability, but if you have the ability, then who cares? In a world where you can no longer hold up a degree to signal it, you can still hold up your talent as an attorney. So... so it's almost like we're scared of losing this thing that we can cling to to point out that we're good instead of just showing that we're good. And maybe, okay, maybe we won't be able to lean on that anymore. Maybe we'll actually just have to be talented in a world where, where there are no longer symbols, you know, to represent our talent. So, um... A loser. A loser. <laughs> wait, 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 wait a second. <laughs> I think that this thing about what, you know, this piece of paper, nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, that thing actually is valuable to me. Um, But we're not actually talking here about accrediting all of these people. I mean, when you think about where the bottleneck is in this process, there is this work that goes into actually evaluating the work of all of the people who are participating. When they do their homework, when you do your homework, and he sits there and grades it. It's his one real responsibility as a law professor is that he and only he can grade your work um, because he is supposed to be the one who can evaluate how talented you are as law students. And that's something that Harvard (laughs) is not going to let us spread out there to everybody else. These at-large participants, they don't turn in work. If they do turn in work, I can't give them a grade. I can't give them a piece of paper. And the meaning of that piece of paper is exactly what you say. It's a symbol of talent. It's hard to show somebody your talent all at once when you're applying to a job. And so we use this surrogate, which is this piece of paper, which is not just a meaningless piece of paper. It's something that says you actually can assimilate all of the knowledge and do something useful with that knowledge, where, which is something that we just, I mean, maybe we could in the future figure out how to give that in a sort of an at-large and free way. But right now, there is a huge amount of human effort that goes into that evaluation and this hierarchical level of levels of who's allowed to accredit who in order to have that degree be meaningful. And none of that's even in play right now in this whole open education discussion. Um, I... So I guess the point I really, really wanted to make, which is why I've been holding up my hand for the last 10 minutes, is that maybe it's time to rethink like what a university is supposed to be and what a law school is supposed to be. And, and I say this as kind of, uh, I, I don't really know that I have the power to make this point since I didn't spend 22 years. I'm only 18 years old right now. Um, I'm a Harvard undergrad. So maybe after four more years of bitterness, I'll feel differently. But it seems to me like we've kind of lost sight of like what law school is supposed to be about, right? I mean... So the degree is important, but also important is that you're, you're here to, like, learn law. And who cares if you learn law, you know, not here, or if you learn law in a different way? I mean, pretty soon, inevitably, these classes are going to end up online. If Harvard doesn't do it, some other university will, and someone's going to discover, hey, the curriculum's not that different. And then it's, it's going to come down to, like, you know, 
I find that here at Harvard, the most valuable thing I'm doing isn't taking classes. It's, you know, working with the organizations of talented people who are also at Harvard and, you know, really making some difference. And I think that eventually colleges are going to have to recognize that that's the real focus. And we're going to just have to shift to different groups of colleges as different groups of people who are uh, of people who want to work with each other. Well, um, I think you come to law school to learn what law is. People think they know what law is. And right now, law, as most people think of it, is this demeaned and pitiful thing. It's getting trampled. Security reigns. In fact, the question in cyberspace that will shortly be on the table once the military sees cyberspace as a strategic field of action will be the right asserted as a matter of security to surveillance. End of sentence. And think about it right now. Imagine the case in the Supreme Court that somehow tests the congressional statute that gives the executive the power to do surveillance to protect our national security in cyberspace. But if you think of cyberspace as integrated media space, it's what's all around us. It's the whole structure by which we receive message. You've just lost law. It's gone. This case is presently before the Fourth Circuit on the issue of habeas corpus in Guantanamo. with Jerry Newman, who's visiting here, writing an amicus brief, to convince the judges of the Fourth Circuit that they are the law. Same message as Paul Newman at the end of the verdict, which I show always in my evidence class. You are the law. That's the message. So people come to law school to learn that they are the law. You are the law. Law is about authority. It's about coming to be able to be an authority. But be an authority in a way that allows you to be. Be living, not dying. Be the peace at the table. Just express your best self. So this class, as far as I'm concerned, is about breaking through the little barriers that contain our self-expression and recognize the responsibility we have to connect with it. So this podcast that I want you to hear... Oh propose that you let me say one more thing and then we take a tape break and then we do the podcast. Of course. Um, just to connect it back to openness with this idea of the law being demeaned. I mean, currently we're in a situation in which you can take these Harvard law degrees and go off to 
be a clerk and to work in a law firm and possibly to operate in some legislative fun function down the line, but to the extent that in the court of public opinion, law is becoming more and more irrelevant, it's important that the value of the degree is something that uh, exists outside of just this corporate world of firms and the world of government jobs that you get. You'd like for to be able to go out there and the f have the fact that you have a Harvard Law School degree be something that is widely respected by people all through society. And in the current setup of things with the very closed education system, the way that Ivy League schools are viewed is these ivory towers where everybody's there doing some esoteric stuff that has no connection to the real world and people, you know, it's like completely irrelevant to most people that what, what actually goes on here at Harvard. So to me, I feel like one of the things that we can accomplish by opening up our education is increasing the value of the degrees that we give here by letting people have a sense of what it is that we actually do and think about and let them see where the value is in that education that we're getting so that it gets respect on its own merit. All right, and a concluding word before we end the tape also. Uh, one way to put law in context is to think about how law was regarded at the time of the framing of our American Constitution. Law was like the religion of America. When you read Perry Miller's Life of the Mind, you see the place that law had in people's imagination, their identity. It was a lot of what it meant to be an American. It had powerful egalitarian spirit in it, the spirit of the American jury. And that's not the way law is thought of today. Today, law is thought of as punitive, lawyers, cost-benefit analysis. It's, it's not noble. And it needs to be. So that's what I feel we're trying to teach here and trying to teach here and just trying to be. That would, that would, that would be our best expression of it. All right, so take a break. So I'd like to ask you, if you would, to listen to a podcast, and then we talk about it. So the president wants to make superheroes illegal. He recently proposed a bill outlawing superheroes, and it's working its way through Congress right now. Now, if you follow the news at all, you already know that. It's big news. It's on all the news channels. It's in all the papers. But let's take a second and talk about how we got here. Up until recently... I think in general, we like having superheroes around. They keep us safe. They handle the big jobs that the cops or the army can't really take on. And let's face it, they make the world a more colorful place. They make things interesting. I mean, I know I wouldn't want to live in a world without them. It'd be boring. Sure, they're a hassle sometimes, and people like to gripe. You know, you're walking to work with your business suit on and you walk right into a giant spider's web or you're making your way through Times Square and you almost get a car chucked at your head. It happens to everyone. Everyone's got a story. But it was funny. It was just something to joke about. Overall, 
we appreciated them, we like having them around. But as I'm sure you know, recently something happened and suddenly they don't seem so funny anymore. In Stanford, Connecticut, a group of young, untrained superheroes, in an attempt to boost the ratings for their reality TV show, tried to execute a sting operation on a group of supervillains hiding out in the area. They were completely in over their heads. They failed to keep the operation under control. One of the criminals activated his powers and the resulting explosion killed over 600 people, including the children at a nearby elementary school. Which brings us to the President's Superhuman Registration Act. As you probably know, the act would require all superpowered individuals in the United States to register with the federal government. This means they would have to reveal their identities and the government would in turn treat that information as highly classified. Once a superpowered person is registered pursuant to the act, he can, if he wants, receive training, operate as a salaried government agent, and continue to fight crime that way. Now, for the most part, that sounds pretty fair. I think we can all agree that it is dangerous for people to run around untrained, many of them with powers that they receive completely by accident, and that they simply don't know how to use safely. The people of Stanford didn't need amateur heroes fighting way out of their league. They needed a Spider-Man or a Captain America, someone they could trust, someone with skill and experience. So what happens when the Registration Act forces them into retirement or jail? Spider-Man has made it clear that, like many other masked heroes, he protects his identity not for his own sake, but because he has a family whose lives he refuses to endanger. If we force heroes to unmask in order to do their jobs, many of them are simply going to disappear. What happened at Stanford was a tragedy, and it's good that it caused us to ask questions about our heroes and how they conduct themselves. But if we demand that they either unmask or face arrest, forcing many of them into a hidden retirement, I wonder if there will be anyone left to prevent the next tragedy. Who will be there when it's your small town? When it's your children playing outside the nearby school? Who will be left to save them? All right. The floor is open for critique. First, what do you like about it? What's good about it? Brianna. Um, I was really impressed with the way in which it set everything up for us really succinctly and clearly, given that it's obviously a fictional statute that's being considered. But I thought that um, the speaker did a really good job of sort of describing the scenario just really crisply and making me buy into it pretty quickly. It was also very engaging and conversational-like, so I felt like he was addressing or talking directly to us. So. I mean, just creativity. Uh, we spent a lot of time in law school talking about things far more dull than superheroes, so it's nice that in this class where it's more open and we have the chance to use some creativity, we get to expand beyond our, our usual arguments over obscure, dry doctrinal points or administrative rulings. So I, I, I like the creative aspect of it. Also, I guess it should be said, it was full of empathy. There was the whole, you know, I understand why you feel like this was a big tragedy and we need to do something about superheroes. 
Um, you know, so it did, it did a very good job of connecting to an audience that might like to the Superhero Registration Act. Um, and then it also did a good job of putting in that twist, which is something that's obviously also important, which is to say, I know where you're coming from and I know why you feel that way. And, you know, still you should, you should agree with me. So lots of empathy going on. I liked how it didn't just take a, a black or white point in the end. Um, he left open the possibility, well, this is a good thing because it asked us to start asking ourselves questions about what we should do. And you know what the speaker's own choice is, but it doesn't foreclose a discussion. He doesn't say, well, you're an idiot if you disagree with me. I thought that was effective. Yeah, and I thought, you know, despite being, you know, kind of a creative and, you know, humorous subject matter, the actual issues involved in there, you know, things like, you know, how do we react to tragedies, you know, what kind of steps do we take, you know, the kinds of conflicts between, you know, regimenting things versus allowing people to act on their own. I mean, the issues are very real and very familiar, and it was just, you know, kind of a, uh, an interesting and funny take on them. I, I was basically going to make that same point, that it, as much as it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, it's very relevant. I mean, it's talking about security issues, and superheroes are hot right now, too. But, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of relevance to this idea of how do we accredit people, which we've been talking about with law school and that sort of thing, but also terrorism and national security. I don't know. It just sort of resonated on a lot of levels for me. All right. How, how could you improve it? What suggestions have you got? Where would you take it? What would you do with it? What do you think the point was? What's the message? For me, it was a little bit subtle. Uh, I I mean, it's relevant and all, but I I wasn't... um, I don't know, it seems like, for me, I could have used a few more things to tie it up to some real issues uh, to help me know how I was supposed to apply it to stuff that I could actually do something about. That I, I was sort of thinking that exact same thing about how I didn't really know how to apply it, but then just as you were saying that, though, then I sort of had a visceral reaction to that, and that you're saying that you know it's real subtle, and so I don't really know what it's supposed to make me think. But on the same hand, I really like that because if it had been sort of you know really tied to you know whatever terrorism, 9/11, whatever you know, pick pick hot button issue, then I feel like I would have had a much more visceral reaction and not really thought about it. And because it's so subtle, I think that's really strange because I'm sort of sitting here thinking, you know, I'm not really sure what the position is, and maybe it could be this, and maybe it could be that, and the fact that it is very subtle. Yes, it's a weakness and that I don't feel like it ties itself up, but I don't know, sort of, you know, sort of going one step past saying, yes, that's a critique. Still, I don't know, though, if that's not being just one step more clever in that, you know, not allowing people to sort of just kind of have a visceral reaction and be able to dismiss it or say it's great without having to really, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. That's sort of a, an interesting idea. Well, I think leaving it subtle is a great way to open it, and then you've got people thinking and wondering, well, what is this person's point of view? And that's when you, you've got them captured so you continue with whatever you are actually saying and push the alliteration further, I guess. So how would you continue it? 
another podcast and 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 starting conversations with people on a blog or something like that. I mean, it seems like a great place to start. I mean, you could go any number of directions with it, but just putting out more material in the same vein. And following on that, I think that makes it a more um, potentially empathic argument because it's not like you hear this for a couple of minutes and think like, okay, this person has an axe to grind about whatever, personal injury lawyers and overregulation or the war on terror and something, and this is just, you know, a lead-in for him to, you know, hit me over the head with something of something that he already feels very strongly about. It's like, okay, this person sees that there are complicated issues in this vein. He sees the complexity, and then moving from that into an actual point, I think it's a, it's a good structure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree that, that this is the kind of thing that could be continued on some sort of internet form, um, as a website, as a, you know, as all, I mean, there are all kinds of things that people love to get involved in on the internet that are kind of tongue-in-cheek, that, um, you know, that then sort of can be sort of turned into, explicitly turned into some kind of movement, or just, you know, as a way of getting people to think about these issues. Um, you know, recently... 400,000 people in the British census, right, put down Jedi as their uh, religion. And this was kind of an Internet sort of joke, hoax thing. And now, uh, you know, certain people in, in Britain who think of themselves as Jedis are trying to get it sort of recognized as a religion with, you know, whatever that entails in Britain. Um, you know, and, then, and it's, this is one of these things where a sort of a tongue-in-cheek kind of movement or thing can really involve people because this, you know, your, your guard's a little bit down, you don't take it really seriously and go, you know, oh, he's talking about terrorism or whatever. And you know, then you get a website, you get forums, you get people bringing it up all over the place just because they think it's fun. And that gets people thinking. Um, well, sort of, I mean, the hardest thing that I, that I had with my argument was really making the absolute best argument for the other side. It's so counterintuitive, and I had a ton of trouble with it. And I kind of felt like um, here, when you're making the argument for the other side, I mean, something that would really be hard to argue against, something that would be a really tough argument that you would, might make for the other side is the person whose child died in that in that explosion you know i mean this was my child what if it was your child um it's tongue-in-cheek and it's funny so it's hard to to sort of then get it into that really serious mode but um i i feel like for making if you're going to make the argument from the other side as the best they can make it um the most gripping or compelling they can make it then for something a, a tragedy with hundreds of people dying uh you know Tying it into the real human death and loss of a child would be something that you'd seriously have to answer. It's also all well and good to be feeling bad for the superheroes, but it's not really clear what the distinction is between the superheroes and the supervillains and how you know which is which. And uh, I think that really needs to be addressed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an an excellent uh, thought to... uh, transition to, to my thought about this. Um, I uh, was stimulated to think in terms of this question that I had put up on the board 
yesterday, uh, distinguishing Charles Fried's modern libertarian from Nietzsche's Superman, and taking this theory of modern liber liberty in a cyberspace to its logical extreme, in some sense, and trying to use it in a variety of different ways. Uh, uh, a number of thoughts, in a sense, fold together. Uh, the idea of the, the, the modern libertarian as a citizen of cyberspace in an environment in which there is no state. Now, granted, some people will tell you, yes, there is, but except the, at least the possibility of thinking about the environment as one in which there is no state. That makes each of the individuals superheroes. And this comic treatment of the idea of regulating them, subjecting those superheroes to a state, it's, it's comic. And in that way, challenging and profound. So I thought it was an excellent piece of work, and I congratulate you on it. Terrific. And it then put me in mind of a conversation that I had with Richard that played off an observation that Rebecca had made about these podcasts. She noted that there's just so much of your personality in them. They're alive. You're, you're, you're present. And she was contrasting it to your writing in which you're not present. And we were talking about why that was so. And Richard observed as a public school teacher in the past, that if you ask kids the first two things they can remember about how to write, the first one would be, you don't put I in your essay. You exclude yourself. And the second was, you never end a sentence without a, with a proposition. But, but yes, I, you, can, you can see how training to write in the legal form so that you will function as excellent associates in a large enterprise which produces things in a particular form is a structure of the education that you've been in. And what I noted about the podcast is this feeling, as we were leading up to it, that I was asking you to do something really big somehow. This, is, this was like a big thing to ask of you. And then the sense after you'd done them that it really wasn't that much at all. It was fun and, whoa, there's personality in them. So it's a, it's a platform from which you can draw a conclusion that in the enterprise of breaking through barriers of our self-expression, we are dealing with things just like that, just like the... the the, the forms, the architecture that we've learned what we know in. And it makes it possible then to see 
this environment as a place in which we're teaching about creating rhetorical spaces and what goes on in them and what they're good for and what different kinds of spaces are good for. So I spoke with Brianna this morning about this issue of the laptops in class. And we're eager. Well, Brianna, I should let you speak. Do you want me to just sort of explain our idea for... Okay. Um, So we have a somewhat loosely um, defined plan for exactly how we're going to do this, but the idea is that we want to create space for actual conversation about the whole issue of laptops um, in the classroom and how they have been used in the past, how they are being used, how they're not being used, how they could be used, um, with basically the goal being to empower the faculty members at this school um, to stop sort of being on one side or the other of this debate, that it doesn't have to be this, okay, we need to have a vote and ban laptops, or we need to have a vote and keep them, and and to really think about how they are using the space in the classroom and and what sort of the alternatives might be for them. Um, And the idea we're thinking about implementing is putting together a panel of faculty members, um, possibly with some students there also to have the student voice there, but... Um, have faculty members who have taken different approaches to using technology in their classroom um, and just just create a dialogue because I think there's a lot of frustration among the faculty about this issue. I think there's a lot of frustration among the student population as well. Um, but I think that that would be one way to sort of just start breaking people out of this idea that it has to be one way or the other. Anybody thoughts? Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm not sure I get your I, I understand your point about it not being just one way or the other, because the laptop issue, as I've seen it, is that professors, as, as far as I can tell, do have one choice, because once they give their students laptops, it's pretty much out of the professor's hands. And the question is, you know, do you give students the option of having laptops, in which case, you know, it seems, in my experience, inevitably to just become a free-for-all, or do you just not go down that road to begin with? And I'm uh, just interested to hear what more this, the, the range of options you're talking about is. Can well, I, I think one of... about this, actually? I, it's something I'm very curious about. It's just sort of a question to the class. It seemed to me that it would be possible for a professor to say, you could have your laptop to use for class-related activities and not for something else, and that that would actually affect the decisions of many students in the class as to how they use their laptop. Maybe not everyone, but many. And I'm curious whether you guys think that's true or not. It's not true. I've had professors ask that. I've had professors ask that, and I've never seen more Tetris in a class than (laughs) that class. Just to to respond to your point, I think that's the way that most people are seeing it right now. I think that's the way the faculty sees it. It's either, okay, I let them bring their laptops and I just have to put up with it, or I ban them, and I'm like that teacher who bans laptops. Um, But I think Professor Nesson today and last week is demonstrating at least one of the alternatives, which is you say, okay, today we're just going to talk, and I want connection between the students. I want the wall of laptops down. 
So for today, we're not using our laptops, and most people have been complying for most of the class, and I think it really does enrich the dialogue. So the idea is, is it's really just to say, look, this is part of your job as an educator is to decide how are you going to be interacting with your students? You know, how are you going to be controlling the space and not just having that defeatist attitude that like, well, you know, there's a benefit to laptops. Students have convinced me of that. So I'm just going to have to put up with the detriments as well. And the the idea is is that it will be different for every teacher. It'll be different for every subject. You know, it'll be, it could be different from day to day. So it's just trying to be a little bit more creative about it. Um, I was just going to say, I've actually been in classes where the teacher sort of guides, say, 45 minutes of the class on the laptops, and we're all using our laptops to follow what the teacher wants us to do, and I've actually found that to be very helpful. So I think there are a lot of other ways ways to use laptops. In particular, I mean, there are certain subject areas that are clearly more fit for that sort of thing, but I think, you know, it's not just once your laptop's open, everybody clearly must be instant messaging. Like, there are other things to do on it, and if the professor decides they're going to use that space and organize as a lesson plan around the, that option, then I think it's, it's a great tool, and I think they could use it easily. Well, uh, I'm sorry we're running out of time, and there's a, another short matter that I want to deal with, but let me just bring this to a close by uh, saying that in some sense this links to the idea about what law is and how we teach it. Uh, if you if you take this thought that I'm offering that law has become this punitive thing that's dependent on personal jurisdiction and punishments in order to make things happen, then you get one view. But if you take a law as having to do with community, building a sense of community, a sense of identification and participatory citizenship, and you think that that's what you're teaching in law school, and you are teaching it by enlisting and creating a sense of community in which a request that's made and explained in a way that actually makes it palatable with a feedback system such that open revolution is not the only recourse, it would have a much better chance of working. And that's the kind of discussion that Brianna and I are eager to see at least put on the table. I just wrote to Nathan's IT committee to see if the IT committee would support Brianna's effort to organize this, and I think um, it's discourse. And it it seems to me the challenge is not to have a good discussion. We can do that. The challenge is to build an audience for it that really is open to coming and to listening. All right, so um, last thing on the agenda. We have three weeks left. They're basically open weeks for project and project discussion. In a sense, I've started that today. But I would like it to become an object that you think about of how we manage the remaining time we have. You actually know more than I know about your project. And I would like somehow to have projects being presented, discussed, whether at a preliminary stage or whatever stage, but I would like to use the remaining time we have to get as much expression and feedback as we can as a group about the projects that we're doing. 
So practically speaking, what that comes down to is that somebody's got to email me and say, okay, I'm ready to do something next Monday. Okay? What counts as something? Like I'm ready to talk to the class about my thoughts or I'm ready to put a video on the screen? Uh, it could be either. It could be it somehow there's got to be a time between now and the end when you step up somehow and express yourself. And it's like take your shot whenever. Okay, thanks very much. <laughs>